The great Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers once said this, We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. That cuts to the heart, doesn't it? That's because prayer has a way of revealing what really matters to us. Have you ever had a friend that only reaches out to you when they need something? Nobody wants to be that friend, but maybe we're all that friend when it comes to God. And our prayers have a way of revealing that. In many ways, prayer is like a thermometer for our relationship with God. This might sound harsh, but if you never pray, you don't really know God. I mean, if someone came up to me and said, hey, how's your relationship with your wife? And I said, it's great. I mean, we're not talking at the moment, but it's great. You'd be like, no, 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 that's, that's not how it works. You can't have a good relationship with her if you're not talking with her. But so often, that's how we are with God. We have our relationship with God, but we don't talk to him. But if you only ask for stuff when you pray, then God is more like Santa than a savior to you. If you only go to God when you're in trouble, then God is more like a repairman than a redeemer to you. And in this passage today in the book of Ephesians, Paul prays for these Christians, and in doing so, he teaches us how to pray and what to pray and why to pray. First, we see in verse 14 how to pray. He starts off by saying, for this reason. Now that raises the obvious question of what reason? What He's appealing to something as he begins to pray. And the answer to that is he's appealing to everything he's already said in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. He's saying, for this reason, for all that that I just said to you, and what is that? Well, you learn in Ephesians 1 and 2 that God has this great plan. It's a cosmic plan of uniting heaven and earth, and within that, of reconciling God and fallen humanity to himself. It's this incredible plan to renew all things that he has accomplished through Christ. It's a story that culminates in Jesus the one who reconciles. And so Paul is teaching us when he says, for this reason, he's teaching us that we need to pray in accordance with God's purposes. Just stop and think about what your prayers are like most of the time you pray. Do your prayers align with God's purposes? God of heaven and earth, wouldst thou give me a Lamborghini? Uh, I'm just not really sure if that's aligning with God's purposes. Lord, would you please smite my neighbor who wakes me up too early every morning? Not exactly positive if that's going in accordance with God's purposes. If we're honest with ourselves, when we pray, so often we're just asking God to bless our own purposes and our own plans. So we need to pray in accordance with God's purposes. And what are God's purposes? We know this. God cares more about your holiness than your comfort. God is passionate about building his kingdom, not yours. God is on mission to get the gospel out and to bring outcasts in. If you believe those things, it's going to drastically change the way that you pray. For this reason, he's appealing to the promises of God in his prayers. And then he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. 
kneeling before God reminds us that we need to pray with an attitude of humility. When was the last time that you got on your knees in prayer? And I don't ask you that question to make you think that it's some like ritual that you need to schedule and that you got to make sure you do. Getting on our knees ultimately reflects a humble and submissive heart where we're not coming to God with a to-do list of how he can serve us and accomplish our purposes, but how we are coming to him as servants saying, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. What can I do for you? Prayer, if you think about it, is the most humble thing you can do. And yet, it's one of the most bold things you can do. It's humble because you're asking for help. It's bold because you're asking the king of the universe for help. But he's not just a king. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He says we're praying to God as Father. And this is so important for us because our view of what God is like will shape prayer more than anything else. If you think God is a creator who's not involved in his creation, then you'll talk to him like a distant relative. Your prayers will be like, hey, Lord, it's been a while. Things are going okay down here. I'm sure you've been busy, but I got a couple things I need you to help me out on. If, if you think of God as just a divine landlord who wants you to pay the rent and not break anything, then your prayers will probably feel like deposits. You're just checking in, paying your duty to God to keep him happy so that he doesn't smite you. But Paul teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven. A father, at least what a father should be, is the perfect combination of intimacy and reverence. Intimacy without reverence could be mere sentimentalism. Reverence without intimacy would just be submission. But intimacy and reverence is the love of a father. And praying to God as father reminds us that prayer is not primarily transactional, it's relational. Prayer is not a ritual to get something from God. It's an encounter with the living God. If you think about it, our culture is all about prayer, but in a way that removes the object of prayer. Even our language reveals that when people say, well, my thoughts and prayers are with you, as if my prayers have some kind of substance in and of themselves apart from God. We're totally comfortable in our society talking about prayer so long as you don't mention God. And so prayers become like religious fairy dust that we blow around to make people feel good. My prayers are with you. But imagine I get a new phone and I call you on it. And you ask how I'm doing and I say, oh, I don't want to talk to you. I just wanted to use my new phone. That would be offensive, right? But when we make prayer to be about the thing rather than God himself, that's exactly what we're doing. It's classic religiosity, elevating the means to replace the end. We live in a society that has faith in faith and prays prayers to no one. But as Edmund Clowney says, the Bible does not present an art of prayer. It presents the God of prayer. For Christians, prayer is not about prayer. It's about God and knowing him through prayer. So that's a little bit on how to pray, but then Paul moves on to what to pray. And this is where prayer starts working what we believe deep into our souls. 
In verses 14 through 19, you really get into the heart of this prayer. And I want you to notice what he doesn't pray for. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. And he doesn't ask for anything about their circumstances. In fact, throughout Paul's prayers in the New Testament, you hardly ever see that where he's asking that God would merely change their circumstances. And that's because he knows if they know God, then they can face any circumstance. And so what is it that Paul prays for them about? In verse 16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul's main request in this prayer is that God would strengthen them with power in their inner being. But power to do what? He answers that in three ways. First, he prays that they would be strengthened to experience what they already know. This is actually the key to unlocking the meaning of this entire passage. And we often overlook it. Think about this. Paul prays that they would be strengthened with the spirit in their inner being, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. But Paul is writing to Christians. He says that in the opening verses, in the opening verses of Ephesians. He says, this is to the saints in Ephesus. He's writing to Christians. So why would he pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts? In fact, we've already seen in the first couple chapters in Ephesians that He tells them that they are in Christ and that Christ is in them and that they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So why is Paul praying for something that he already knows is true of them? Why is Paul going to God and saying, may Christ dwell in their hearts when he knows that that's true? It must be that Paul is addressing a dissonance between what they know in their heads and what has gripped their hearts. There's a gap between what they know to be true and what they experience as reality. They, like many of us, might say, I know the truth that God loves me. But the reality is, I don't feel loved. And I'm actually driven by my need for love. They might say, I know God is with me. And yet I couldn't feel more alone. We might say, I know God has a plan for me, but it feels like my life is a disorganized mess. Unfortunately, what is true doesn't always feel real. And we need to acknowledge that because there's a serious danger in the church in general of being inauthentic or shallow. And we have to acknowledge this gap and recognize what Paul is teaching us here that the Spirit causes what is true in our heads to become real in our hearts. Not just knowing it, but being gripped by it. In a way that when what you know actually shapes your affections, it determines your identity, it directs the way you live your life, you might say, well, yeah, I, I get God, I get the love of God, but have you been gripped by it? In a way that really shapes your life. We understand this concept of saying, well, I know something, but I don't really know it. Think about whenever you have a birthday. Somebody, that person, inevitably comes up to you and says, does it feel different today, you know, compared to yesterday? 
Does it feel different being 28 rather than 27? Of course, you know, uh, it doesn't feel that different. But think about when you turned 16, all right? When you turned 16, 16, someone might have came up to you and said, well, does it feel different? You probably would have said no. Until that day when you went to that place that otherwise you want to avoid the rest of your life, but when you're 16 is amazing, the DMV. (laughs) And you go there and you take that driver's test And after you take that test, then you have your license. Now, if someone asks you, does it feel different? Yeah. Somehow when you get your license, being 16 becomes real to you. It does something in the way that you live your life. It opens up new possibilities to you and the need for greater accountability, I should add. Now, we might say, oh, of course God loves me but I don't feel loved and I still struggle with that and I basically spend my life looking for that love. But what's going on when someone says that, what's really happening is they know it intellectually, but it hasn't sunken into the place of their heart that's really the control center of their lives. See, I'm not, when I use the word heart, I'm not talking about mere emotions. The Bible talks about the heart as the center of our being. It's the control seat for everything in your life. And sure, we know God loves us. We know God is there, but so often we're functional atheists. We live as if there was no God. We say we believe things, but we live a different way because we keep it at a distance. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards from the 18th century uh, used an analogy to explain this so well in a sermon in 1734 called Divine and Supernatural Light. Edwards said this, he says, There's two ways to know that honey is sweet. One way is you could use the mind and rationality. The other way is to use the tongue and sensation. One way that you could know that honey is sweet is you could use your mind and think through it and you could look at the elements and the properties in honey and you could uh, find out what tastes sweet to people and you could put that all together and you could determine scientifically that that's going to taste sweet. But there's another way to discover that honey tastes sweet. Through sensation, through sensing it on your tongue, by tasting of it, by taking it within. And when someone did that, if if someone who had tried the first way through rationality to show that honey is sweet, and then they tasted of it, they might say something like, well, I knew it was sweet before, but now I really know. That's the kind of depth of knowing, of receiving the love of God that Paul is inviting us into here. You can have the opinion that God is loving, but that's very different than having a sense in your inner being that God loves me. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe you've heard of the Lord. Maybe you've heard of the love of God. Maybe you've been hearing it your entire life. But it hasn't actually gotten into the control seat of your heart. Now, unfortunately for many, knowledge and experience have become awkward enemies. Many have appealed to experience at the expense of God's revealed truth. And then in reaction, others have talked about experience as if it's a bad thing. But you should experience what you believe. It's a false dichotomy to set belief and experience 
uh, in, in, in as a choice or in opposition to each other. You should believe what you experience. If you believe in justification, you shouldn't feel guilty. If you believe in the resurrection, you should feel alive. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, you should feel confident. If you believe God loves you, you should feel loved. Some of you here uh, might identify, especially with some of those, that you know you've been forgiven. You've heard there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and yet it's still guilt that drives you in your life. Maybe it's guilt that brought you here today. I'm supposed to go to church. That's what good Christians do. But by the grace of God, we know that God doesn't motivate us by guilt, but by the gospel. It's in forgiving our sins. It's in cleansing us of our shame. It's in removing the burden of us having to prove ourselves that we are then motivated to live for the glory of God. I experienced this myself in a really powerful way. Years ago, when I first really uh, had a love for theology, I read a couple books and it made me realize how much I didn't know about God and about the Bible. And it just gave me this this voracious appetite to read and to learn and to grow. And I think it was a, a good impulse that I wanted to learn to love the Lord with my mind. I wanted to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus as he's revealed in scripture. So I was just reading and devouring theology books and reading through the Bible. But then eventually I stumbled upon a book by a woman named Teresa of Avila. She was a, a woman, a Spanish nun in the 16th century. And this book is called The Interior Castle. Now, I don't agree with everything that Teresa says in it, but as I read that book, and it's basically a story, she, she tells an allegory of our soul being like a castle. And there's seven layers within it, and everyone moves inward towards union with God through prayer. So it's through prayer that she works in to the middle of this interior castle where we have union with God. And as I was reading that book, I just felt the Lord asking me, what is the condition of your soul? What is the condition of your soul? And the more I thought about it, the more I had a hard time answering it. Because I was thriving intellectually, mentally. I was thriving in that way. But when it came down to it, felt like there was no life in my soul. That at best I was asleep. That there wasn't going, there wasn't much going on here. My affections for the Lord weren't being stirred up. I just wanted to know more information. And in doing so, God exposed that within me and really lit a flame within me of realizing that theology isn't a bad thing, but the more we know about God, the more we should know God and love God and glorify God. I began experiencing in my inner being what I already knew to be true in my head. So Paul prays that we should experience what we already know, but he also prays that we would be transformed by what we already have. He had already told the Ephesians that they had the immeasurable riches of Christ. Unlimited resources. And yet apparently they weren't drawing from them. Reminds me of a story that I heard recently of an Israeli woman named Anat who bought her mother a mattress. 
Her mother was elderly. She didn't get out of the house too much at this stage in life. Her mattress was extremely old. She'd had it most of her life. And so she did the nicest thing she could imagine. And she went and replaced her mother's old mattress. But when her mother got home and saw that her old mattress was gone, she nearly had a heart attack. You see, over the years, this woman's mother had been storing any extra money that she had inside of her mattress. And it turns out that over a lifetime of putting money in her mattress, that she had stored up to a million dollars inside of this mattress. And when her mother brought her a new one, they took the old one out, sent it to the dump, never to be found again. And this woman, turns out, had spent a lifetime sleeping on a million dollars and never drawing from it, never using it for her life. And that's exactly what Paul says the, the Christians in Ephesus were doing that they had been given the immeasurable riches of Christ. They were sleeping on it. That they weren't using it. They weren't tapping in to this power that wasn't under them, but was in them, in the Holy Spirit. So the heart of this passage is that we need the Spirit to enable our hearts to experience what we already know and to be transformed by what we already have. But then the question is, how does the Spirit do this? Does he just zap us and change us immediately? Does he just tell us to muster up more love? Well, the next verses show us that this inner transformation happens not by what we do for God, but rather in understanding his love for us. Not only does Paul pray that we would experience the power of the Spirit, but also that we would know the love of Christ. In verses 17 and 18, he says this. He prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So first, we saw that we need the strength of the Spirit to experience what is already ours in Christ. Now we see that we need the Spirit to increase our capacity to receive God's love. My four-year-old daughter, Lauren, came up to me recently and said, Daddy, I love you a hundred (laughs) pounds. Now, what was she meaning when she said that? She's pressing her limits of her knowledge to express the heights of her love for me. She's looking for categories to explain how she feels towards me. And that's what we do when we talk about God's love. Paul is trying to help us grow into the love of God to see how big it is. And he's he's just trying to push out our boundaries that we have for God's love and saying, it's bigger than you think. He's trying, he's praying for the Ephesians and for us that our capacity for understanding and receiving the love of God would increase. How ironic is it that he wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? You ever think about that? He's asking for something impossible, to know something that's unknowable. How can you know something that's beyond knowledge? Christ's love for us is so big, it's so grand, that it's only by the power of God that we can begin to understand its magnitude. Our capacity has to be increased for that. Now, my wife and I, 
have four kids. And people always ask us, I mean, especially when we walk around the neighborhood we live in or when we're in Hollywood, like people ask us, they look at us like we're crazy, you know, having four kids. And people always ask us like, how do you do it? Like, isn't that, they they talk about it like it's a tribe or a clan or something. Like, no, they're, they're kids. But they ask us, how do you do it? And honestly, our answer usually is like, I don't know. We're not sure if we are doing it. Like, it's crazy and life is all over the place. But we do feel like we're okay. But I remember back to when we had one kid. And I remember just, you know, like for any of you who have had a kid, you know, like first six months here, like you're just like a zombie. Like you don't know what's going on. Like, is it daytime or night? Like, do I need to change a diaper or feet? Like, it just feels crazy. And you feel like, I can't do this. Like, how could I ever have another kid, right? It feels impossible. Then eventually, we felt like that, but then eventually my wife and I got pregnant again. We had another kid, and we felt like God increased our capacity. And then we had another, and then we had another. And if uh, now we have four kids, and if you've ever heard Jim Gaffigan, what he says, he says, you know what it's like having a fourth kid? Imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> we can attest to that. Like, like that's what it feels like. But somehow, by God's grace, he's given us the capacity to be able to love our four kids and pour into them and keep them from, you know, like doing, burning the house down or something. And it's by God's design and by his grace that the normal pattern is that you have one kid at a time because you need your capacity to expand gradually. And Paul is praying that God would increase our capacity not primarily to love him, but first and foremost, to receive love from him. We talk a lot about loving God, but as it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. God's love for his people is so wide as to include people from across the globe. It's as long as eternity passed when God set his affection on us. It's so high as to reach to the heaven where even the angels are praising God. It's so deep as to take Christ to a place of profound humility. The love of God is mesmerizing, almost disorienting until we fix our eyes on the cross. And then it all comes into perspective. When we talk about the love of God, we're not just talking about a generic love, not just a feeling that God has for us. The greatest love is displayed by how much someone is willing to sacrifice for another. And God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And God demonstrates his his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news that Paul wants us to hear this cruciform love, this love that sent Christ to the cross when he didn't have to. The Bible teaches that our sin separates us from God and that God's righteous and holy response is to judge us of that. And he would be deemed praiseworthy for that because he's a righteous judge. He doesn't bat an eye at evil. He's not okay with wickedness. He's not, he's not okay with his creation being corrupted. God doesn't have to save us. So often we presume upon God's grace, like he's good at forgiving, I'm good at sinning, this is a match made in heaven. Like that's God's job to forgive me, right? 
No, God doesn't have to do that. It's by God's grace. It's the abundance of his love from which he sends his son to the cross to reconcile us to God. And we often get it backwards thinking, if I love God more, then he will love me more. But a genuine love for Christ springs from an awareness of Christ's love for us. And that's exactly what Paul is praying for and that we need to constantly hear. I was talking to my oldest daughter a while ago. She's six years old. And I said, I said, Ashlyn, I love you so much. And you know, I'm trying to be sweet and loving. And she looks at me and she's like, dad, I know. Like, like it was almost like you already told me that, you know. But see, the reason she responded that way is she misunderstood what I was doing. She thought I was trying to inform her of something. I was trying to remind her of something. And you might know that God loves you. You may have heard that a million times, but we need to constantly be reminded of God's love for us, that it's bigger than we could ever imagine, and allow that to sink in in a way that would actually shape our lives. And he calls us to do that with all the saints. I love that. He calls us to comprehend this love with all the saints. Paul's prayer isn't just that we as individuals would be dazzled by God, but that we'd be captivated captivated by the love of God and the community of God, the church. It takes the whole people of God to grasp the whole love of God. And Paul is praying that receiving and understanding this love would change our lives. And so he goes on in verse 19 to to say all of this, comprehending this love is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Being filled up with who God is in a way that overflows into a life that reflects his love. Now, when I'm doing the dishes and I'm really lazy, what I do is I just take like a dirty cup and I put it there and then I just turn the hot water on and I just let it fill it up and just kind of overflow, right? And what happens is, is that hot water keeps filling the cup and it's overflowing. It takes the dirt and the filth inside of it and eventually brings it out. That's what the love of God is meant to be like in our hearts. That as we are filled with the love of God, that it's, it's expanding our understanding of his love. And it's pushing out the impurities in our lives, bringing us further and further into a place of maturity. See, when it talks about uh, that you may be filled to the fullness of God, he's really talking about growing up in maturity. Our maturity is directly related to our capacity to understand and receive God's love. It's not, maturity is not equated with knowledge It's our understanding to receive God's love and to be shaped by it in a way where it's the love of Christ that compels us to love God, to love one another, to love the neighborhoods that he has placed you in on the west side. And notice that he says that we would be rooted and grounded in love. It's two different metaphors there. Rooted, you're talking about roots in the ground and uh, and grounded, or the word here is like a foundation, And what you'll notice about both of those is he's referring to things that you can't see. When you look at a beautiful plant, it needs to be rooted. You can't see the roots. When you look at a house or a building, you don't see the foundation. And yet he's reminding us that the unseen 
It's in our inner being that we need the Spirit to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. We need the Spirit of God within us to do this. Trying to follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit is like running on the treadmill, working really hard and going nowhere fast. We need the Spirit of God to empower us in being conformed to the image of Christ. And as we do, as we allow the love of God to work deeper and deeper into our souls, then we're just going to want to live for his glory. And you see that in this prayer in verses 20 and 21 culminates in such a beautiful poetic way where Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He says in this prayer, he shows us why to pray. We've seen a little bit about how to pray, what to pray, but here, why pray? First and foremost, because God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Our belief in prayer grows in the soil of these truths. Our need is great and our God is greater. Some of you are very aware of your needs, but you need to be made aware of how great God is and how much he can do. He can do anything. He's sovereign and he's for us. And yet so often, we're like Sarah who laughed at God. I love in Genesis 18, God had gone to Abraham and Sarah and they're in their old age. And he says, I'm going to give you a child. And Sarah laughs. She thinks that's impossible. I'm too old for this. That's silly. But what I love about this is God doesn't let her get away with it. He calls her out for it. He's like, you're laughing? It's like, I'm the God of the universe. I create life. You don't think I can do this? And God essentially says, reminds her that he is sovereign, that he can do all things and says, we're going to talk again in a year. And when we do, you're going to be holding a baby in your arms. And that's exactly what happened. She doubted, but she saw God. She encountered him. Her and Abraham trusted. They believed and God worked in incredible ways. He can do more than we can imagine. He's not a reluctant giver who has a, a, a quota of answered prayers that he runs out of after a while. He doesn't have piles in heaven that, that you know, he, he, he gets to his max every day and says, sorry, like I got to save these for the really holy people. That's not how it works. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And God wants us to pray because God chooses to draw us into his work. He says all this is according to his power that is at work within us. People ask the question, is, if, if God is sovereign, then why pray? Because God has sovereignly chosen to work through the prayers of his people. He has invited us in to what he is doing, even though he doesn't need us. You see this in one of the greatest missionaries of all time, Hudson Taylor. He said this. He said, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked if I might help him. I ended up by asking him to do his work through me. God doesn't want us just to pray and sit back and do nothing. Like he hasn't called us to be stewards. He also doesn't want us just to ignore prayer and say, well, I gotta, I gotta do this. Like God's waiting upon me. He wants us to pray and then he wants us to surrender to him and say, God, use me however you would. But what I want to close with here is why God 
calls us to pray is that because God deserves all the glory. If the power comes from God, then the glory goes to God. And we started by talking about how prayer is like a spiritual thermometer for our relationship with God. And prayer is the way that the Spirit works truths into our hearts. And it's prayer that turns our belief in God into an experience with God. Maybe you've heard of God. I hope that you're having an encounter with God, even now, as we're reading his word, that you would recognize that God is in this place, that you'd be able to pray like Jacob did in the Old Testament, that surely the the Lord is here and I knew it not. And that you would have not just an experience of church, but you would sense God's own presence. And when you do, belief turns into experience where you have a shift from merely saying, God is holy, saying, God, you are holy. You shift from just declaring a truth, God is trustworthy, to making a personal confession, God, I trust you. It's a shift from just believing God is loving to saying, God, thank you for loving me. God can do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. And he wants to do it through us. So let's surrender our lives to his purposes for his glory. This passage reminds us of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, you don't just need to work harder. You need to apply the grace of God to every aspect of your life and live out of that. We need to be reminded every day of God's love for us in Christ. If you don't know Jesus as a savior, as a mediator, then the response is to turn from your sin. That's what the word repentance means, to turn away from saying, my way of I'm in charge, I lead, to turn from that. It's to give up on yourself as Lord and to trust in Jesus and say, I'm yours, your grace is sufficient, I trust you. And in doing so, God gives us a new heart. He fills our hearts with love, that we would then have a response, that we're a people who are so loved by God, that we would love him, that we would love one another, that we would love the city that God has placed us in. I want us to take a moment now to reflect in silence, to reflect on God's love for us. To, To do what we're seeing in this passage But as you reflect, then to receive. Don't just reflect on the love of God as if it's a thing out there. Receive it. Allow the love of Christ to invade every space of your heart. And then even during this time and afterwards, begin to allow that to turn you to rejoice. That you are loved by God to rejoice and to respond with gratitude and let that to be the motivating factor in how you live your life, that you are so loved by such a loving God. Let's, let's reflect on God's love for a moment now.